Hey, everybody. I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Dan, how you doing? I am good, John. John, I have one question for you. Do you know who D.B. Cooper is? Uh, This is a name that I am not familiar with. Well, it's kind of a trick question because actually nobody really knows who D.B. Cooper is. Uh, D.B. Cooper is a name that's associated with this infamous unknown hijacker who back in 1971 parachuted out of a commercial airplane with $200,000 with him, and he was never seen again. That is wild. I, I, it's kind of amazing that I've never heard of this story because it yeah, sounds like, yeah, I like mean, it's a movie. What a rock have you been living under, John? Well, anyway, it's, uh, it is the only unsolved commercial airline hijacking in U.S. history. Whoa. And I'm going to stop telling you things about it because we actually have on the line an expert who knows more than about this than db cooper probably knows his name is eric ulis he is an expert in all things well all things hijacking or all things db cooper specific we're gonna find out welcome eric hey thank you very much guys glad to be here and I want to warn everyone this is an active crime scene that you're listening to so just be careful where you step unsolved mysteries Eric, no, this is uh, an incredible, uh, I've read some things that you've been up to lately, So, uh, but I want to maybe start, if you could just let everyone know a little bit more about uh, about Cooper and how we got to this place, and then then let's, let's hear what you've been uh, finding out. So this uh, took place on Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, which was Thanksgiving Eve. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, Dude shows up at the, Portland, the airport in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, goes to the Northwest Orient Airlines ticket counter and buys a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle, which is typically a 36-minute flight. Uh, Within the hour, he boards the jet and proceeds to skyjack the jet. Now, he does this by passing a note to the flight attendant, uh, notifies her that he has a bomb in an attache case, uh, requires her to come sit down next to him. He issues some demands, which amount to 200,000 bucks in cash, uh, two front parachutes and two back parachutes, and he wants all of this stuff a stage at the uh, Seattle International Airport by 5 p.m. and he's not going to let the jet land until it's actually all in place at SeaTac. Uh, the authorities are a little bit late, uh, so by 5.40 uh, everything's in place. The uh, Cooper lets the jet land, uh, he gets the 200000 bucks. 36 passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plane briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. With the full ransom collected from Seattle banks and four parachutes aboard, the plane headed for Reno. It took three and a half hours, slow for a jet, 
Then it takes off uh, toward uh, Mexico because Cooper says, I want you to fly to Mexico nonstop. Don't want you landing in the United States anywhere. Uh, the pilots immediately realize there's a problem. They can't fly that distance nonstop, in part because part of Cooper's demands involve not flying the jet over 10,000 feet, keeping it unpressurized, flying with the landing gear down, flying with the flaps deployed at a very specific 15 degree flight, uh, uh, rather 15 degree uh, setting. And also very importantly, he wanted the back air stairs apparatus hanging open. Now this is a Boeing 727. It had these air stairs which deployed from the back bottom of the fuselage. And uh, he wanted those hanging open in flight. He actually wanted them open at takeoff time. Uh, so to make a long story short, the jet does eventually take off from Seattle, flying in a very slow, dirty configuration like that. Uh, uh, their first stop is Reno. They agree to stop in Reno ostensibly to refuel on the way to Mexico City, Mexico City. And about 35 minutes after taking off as the jet was somewhere near Vancouver, Washington in the Portland, Oregon area, uh, he leaps from the jet with the uh, with a couple of the parachutes and the 10,000 bucks and the, uh, the the bomb in the briefcase never to be seen or heard from again. A hostile terrain for any parachute drop, especially at night. Police believe he left the 727 in the flatlands of Oregon or Washington, but they are still... And uh, therein lies the mystery of D.B. Cooper. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. We don't know his name. We don't know whether he lived or died. So there you go. That is a crazy story and an excellent retelling. You've you have told this story before because you are you are an expert in all things DB Cooper. Well, after about fifteen years of digging into this, probably deeper than uh, a man should or a person should. Uh, yeah, I mean, it started out like I've been asked this question many times. You know, what got you involved? You know, where do you first hear about it? And I said, you know, I first heard about it. I think probably in the late 70s, Leonard Nimoy had a show called In Search Of, and they actually profiled this case at that point. Uh, and I was a big aviation buff as a kid. I was 12 years old in 78 uh, when I believe the show aired. And um, so I just sort of had a passing interest in the case. And then about 15 years ago, I, I went crazy and decided, you know what, what the hell? I think I can solve this thing. I'm going to do the one thing that nobody else could do. So I started diving into it, doing the deep dive. And it started out as a guilty pleasure, and it just morphed into something much bigger. So here we are today, uh, still looking for this guy, uh, and I think we're getting close. I mean, it's been 52 years, and I'm on the record as saying that by the time the 60th anniversary shows up here, again in, in eight years, obviously, uh, I think we're going to have figured out who this guy was. Amazing. T tell us how your your obsession with DB has manifested itself sort of professionally for you, right? Like you have, if you were in books, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, again, it started out as just a passing interest, you know, just sort of, you know, I, mean, I was the kid who, you know, tried to tackle the Rubik's Cube. And uh, interestingly, my background is in card counting, professional level blackjack. If you've ever seen the movie 21 with Kevin Spacey, that kind of thing. So it's very, you know, I'm, I'm just very 
driven by logic and math and numbers and, you know, putting motion aside and everything else, everything of that nature. So I decided to essentially apply that skill set to D.B. Cooper because, hey, what better skill set than a former professional blackjack player to apply to somebody trying to investigate the D.B. Cooper case? Uh, But basically, that has led to, uh, you know, obviously a significant amount of writing and so forth on my part. And, you know, just over time, media started picking up on it. Uh, Various articles were written that uh, ultimately ended up uh, leading to me headlining a History Channel show on History's Greatest Mysteries in 2020 about the skyjacking. Then I appeared on uh, the expedition on Noah Josh Gates a year or so after that. Then a year or so after that, last year, 2022, Netflix documentary about about D.B. Cooper, D.B. Cooper, where are you? So it, again, it's just sort of taken upon itself a life of its own. And uh, as you can tell, I'm not made for TV or talking about this case. So what? <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> yeah. Just the opposite, just the opposite. So I, I do want to ask you a little bit more specifics about his crime. And then I want to get into kind of like, you know, this growing interest for you has has manifested itself in some in some real breakthroughs. Um, but first, I, I, I think I mean, as we hear the story, you know, we have to remember this is the 1971 because you're like, wait, the guy just lands a plane. And then it takes off and then it lands again, like, and, and everyone just giving him stuff. Like, it seems crazy. And this was kind of a, th- this was a little more common back in that those times, right? I think I seem to recall that hot skyjackings were actually more of a common occurrence in this era. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But there were literally, and this isn't hyperbole, there are literally hundreds of skyjackings globally during the late 60s, early 70s. You know, back then, Amazing. you know, this guy could show up in uh, Portland and ask for a ticket. He didn't have to provide any identification. So he ended up giving the name Dan Cooper, which obviously is not his real name. Now, I should note that the media erroneously reported his name as D.B. Cooper, uh, when, of course, the name he gave was Dan Cooper. And people quickly realize, yo, dude, the name is Dan Cooper, not D.B. Cooper. But everybody pretty much universally decided, you know what, Dan Cooper, or rather D.B. Cooper's a hell of a lot more kick ass than Dan Cooper. So we're just going to roll with yeah. D.B. Cooper. From, yeah, no offense, Dan, out. but yeah. Yeah, I mean, what are, what are we trying to say here? Dan is a lame name. Okay, I get it. I get it. I know D.B. Bova kind of has a ring well, to it. Dan. I am a D.B., so I guess oh, yeah, that works true. out. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so right. You 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 could just walk up by it. You don't have to show ID. Um, no metal detectors. Get, no nothing. I mean, yeah, walk no on board bomb with. sniffing anything. Yeah. So it. I guess, and I guess the theory was, maybe he does have a bomb. So let's just let him land and take off as much as he wants, and uh, well, hopefully this all works out. I mean, there was only one landing. I mean, you know, he skyjacked the jet flying up to Seattle. He wouldn't let it land until everything was in place, and then obviously when everything is in place, he. he they took off again for Seattle or rather from Seattle to uh, to Reno to refuel. But he did show the flight attendants what appeared to be a bomb in the attache case. Now, I I think it was likely a fake bomb. I mean, it didn't need to be real. But, you know, from the perspective of the airline, you know, they've got, you know, 36, 37, 38 people's lives on the hook here. They've got a, you know, a jet that's worth an enormous amount of money. Let's let's just give the dude his 200K. We'll catch his ass in the next four or five days and be done with it all. So I just don't think anybody expected, the FBI included, I just don't think anybody expected that this guy was actually going to get away with it and never get caught. 
So he parachutes out of this plane. So first of all, how I how insane is that to parachute out of a, a commercial jet? It sounds insane, but I've I've never done it. So maybe it's it's not as crazy as I think. But also, you know, they never found him. They never found a body. They never found a living body or a dead body. So like what what what's your theory on what went down? Well, here's the really interesting thing ab- about this is within a couple of days, the Air Force provided the FBI with what they thought was the flight path. They're like, you know, this is the flight path. So just look, you know, around this flight path and and you'll find something. And they never found anything at all. Uh, in fact, eight years went by before they actually f- did find a portion of D.B. Cooper's ransom in the form of three packets of $20 bills totaling $6,000 uh, in a very rotted and decayed state uh, buried uh, in the sand along the Columbia River. Now, not directly next to the river. is about 50 feet from the river. So it wasn't like the river would reach the burial spot regularly. In fact, it rarely did. But uh, what's really remarkable about this is it was found at about 20 miles away from where they think he jumped. And it was also basically upstream from where they think he jumped. So there's no plausible explanation for how the money got from the landing zone to being buried on the beach here. Uh, So that's part of the mystery within the mystery. Uh, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I've really seriously looked at is the veracity of the flight path, you know, that the FBI is using. And I've identified what I believe are some some flaws in the flight path. I think that the the flight path actually traces uh, one of the military chase planes that night and not the airliner itself. And there are a lot of reasons too technical to get into here why I believe that's the case. So uh, why that's really important is it would explain why nothing's ever been found where they think something should have been found, but also critically importantly, uh, the, the updated version of the flight path that I created actually puts him landing probably within a mile or so of where a portion that that portion of the ransom was found in the 1980s. So if I'm right about this and he actually landed, let's say about a mile from where the money was found, well, all of a sudden it starts to make a hell of a lot of sense what's going on here. Not only why they never found the guy, but also why 6K ended up on the beach. Well, let's talk about that 6K. So you say they found it buried is there an idea whether it was buried by a human or was it buried by like natural causes? Uh, I am 100% convinced that this was buried by a human being. And the okay. reason why is because it was buried about 50 feet from the water's edge at an elevation about eight or nine feet above the level of the river. And again, uh, the the river never reached that. that there's only two times from the time that the skyjacking took place when the money was found, when the river was actually flooded and reached that spot. The other critical thing is you have three packets, three separate packets right on top of each other, just below the surface of the sand. The rubber bands were even still intact, even though rotted and decayed. So like, there's just simply no way that three random packets, you know, tooled down the Columbia river for 10 or 11 miles. It just by some miraculous freak of nature ended up right on top of each other buried in the sand so okay, it right. had to be by by human intervention and listen if, the, if if a person buried the money in all likelihood that person was db cooper yeah he didn't have like an accomplice on the ground that you know had he died i don't know just the whole thing doesn't make any sense it has to if it was buried by a human it would have to have been him 
Well, you know, one important thing here is I think the evidence is very clear that he intended to jump. He initially intended to jump in the outskirts of Seattle right after mm. the jet took off, maybe six, seven minutes later. But he got delayed for a couple of reasons. And ultimately, he jumped about 36 minutes later in the Portland area. So, uh, you know, that puts him 150 miles away from where he originally planned to jump. And one of the things that he had with him was 20 pounds of $20 bills and a big, you know, white canvas sea first bank bag. Now, the guy can't very well walk into Vancouver, Washington, carrying that bag if he wants to be free very long. So it stands right. to reason the guy had to bury it, stash it temporarily, you know, as he walked into town and then do whatever he did and then eventually come back and pick it up. So I think that explains why the the money was buried uh, where it was buried. And I do think he actually came back and retrieved most of it, presumably under the cover of darkness. But three of those packets got, got left behind accidentally. And ultimately, that's what was found in 1980. Hi, I'm Emily Washkovic, Yelp small business expert and host of the podcast Behind the Review. We're back for season two. And this time, we're keeping everything you love and adding so much more. Get ready to find out what happens behind the scenes at those businesses that everyone raves about. You know the ones. Learn how owners swallow their pride when getting critical feedback and what they do to turn around that unhappy customer. And don't forget the reviewers. We'll find out what inspires them to leave those rants or raves in the first place. Get ready for buzzy new guests like restaurants from Yelp's famed top 100 lists and new short BizBite episodes. Just a few minutes of advice on how to set your business up for success and create connections with customers, both online and off. Subscribe, like, and follow the show to hear new episodes every Thursday. So you you mentioned the, the white cloth bag. Now, I know... You uh, you put out a press release about something very interesting that you found. Do you, you want to explain what that's all about? Yeah, um, I recently, this is within the last few days, conducted a search. I've started conducting a search of a of a trench, of a really hazardous trench. You know, lined with blackberry bushes and all kinds of crap that you just don't want to go through unless you are crazy like me looking for something. And it's within a mile of where the, the money was found. And there's a specific reason I'm looking in this area. Day one of the search, which was just the, the end of last week, uh, covered about 15% of the trench. And we actually found a white flat sheet. And why this is intriguing is, first of all, it was found in a place that I don't think anybody's been for decades. It's just a very difficult place to, to get to. But importantly, we determined that this sheet was actually uh, produced, was actually manufactured between 1964 and 1967, and it was sold at a Kmart store. So it's just a very unusual thing to find out there. Yeah. Now, why that's important is that there are witnesses that have provided testimony that is in the FBI files that talk about seeing Cooper trying to wrap the money in a white material, a quote-unquote white material. So apparently what he tried to do is he, he the, it came delivered in a cheap white canvas bank bag, but the bag was very flimsy and unsturdy. So it looks like he tried to uh, take out some of the cash, roll it up in some white material and, and 
probably stash it in one of the two parachutes that he took, the reserve parachute, which I won't get into the technical reasons behind that as well. And then probably kept the rest secured in the in the original white canvas bank bag because his immediate thought was, listen, if I jump out at 200 miles an hour, you know, 10,000 feet up, this this bag is so cheap, it's just going to explode open and the money's going to be everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I can see that he would have need to have stashed it somewhere. And this is where, you know, again, the flight attendant saw him trying to wrap it up in a white <laughs> material. And so that's the first thing. So that's very intriguing. What's this white material? The other thing is that it's it's a little known fact, but it has been discussed at length, is that D.B. Cooper also brought a paper bag on board the jet. It was about 14 inches wide by about 12 inches tall and about four inches deep. And it's a paper bag that held something we don't know what it was we don't know what was in the bag now presumably what whatever was in the bag was too large to put in his rain coat pockets or anything of that nature uh, and he obviously brought it for a reason so you know it's it's ripe for speculation so perhaps this this white sheet was actually in there and and he intended to use it for the purposes of, uh, you know, rolling up some of the money, some of the money, killing any of the dead space that the that the money would have uh, that would have been around the money in the container. Again, jumping at 200 miles now, you got to be cognizant of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, that ends up on the ground with Cooper. Uh, I'm speculating that what would have happened here is when he lands, you know, he immediately scurries to the edge of this trench, you know, takes off the parachute, throws it into the trench. And this secondary reserve parachute as well, I think he, I believe some of the money was housed in that, may have been in this white sheet. He would have unfurled the cash from that and probably put the blues packets in his pocket at this point because he doesn't need to worry about it blowing out. Uh, and he, he would have discarded the parachute and the sheet and everything related to that, the second shoot in the sheet. And then, of course, walked to the beach carrying not only the loose packets in his pocket, but also that white canvas bank bag that's all tied up from Seafirst Bank that has a portion of the ransom in it. And I think he would have buried all that uh, temporarily and then, uh, and then of, co of course, come back at a later date to retrieve it. So that's why this is very intriguing, because there may be a relationship between that sheet yeah. that we found, though the white flat sheet that we found, and uh, Cooper. You know, in part because just the nature of the item, you know, and, and what the witnesses said, the age of the item is very interesting. And obviously, the location is also very compelling. And, and this, this is what's important to remember. Like, where this thing was found was a very difficult to reach place. And there's no real easy explanation how it got there. But it's there nonetheless. The sheet is there. It got yeah. there. It was transported there somehow for some reason by someone so let's just right. start with that so <laughs> right. it's it's an interesting thing and uh so it's being analyzed right now uh we'll see if there are any fibers that make up that uh white flat sheet that are, are similar to some fibers that were found on db cooper's clip on tie he did leave that tie behind on the jet by the way uh, we'll see if there's some we can make some sort of scientific connection between the tie and that. So that's that's kind of the the hot off the press new information. That's cool. So, and I know that you have been asking and then suing, uh, I believe, the FBI for access to that clip-on tie. Um, so how is how has that gone? 
Yeah, that's exactly correct. Listen, the, the tie it was found on the jet in Reno when it landed there. And I think he left it by behind accidentally. It was a skinny black clip on tie from JC Penny, cost a buck and a half when he bought it. And it was of little value, evidentiary value is 1971. It was 1971, you know. Uh, but, you know, in later years, it's actually been a treasure trove of evidence. A lot of particles and things of that nature have been on the tie that are consistent with the aerospace sector. But one of the things is this snap-on apparatus that's built into tie into the tie has a little spindle on it. And I've noticed in all the pictures of the tie that the FBI has that it's in, it's in the closed position. And I didn't even realize the thing opened up, to be honest with you. Uh, it wasn't until after I actually managed to get my hands on a tie that's just like it and uh, was reading U.S. patent information related to the tie. This is the kind of thing I do, read U.S. patent information from, from decades ago. And I realized by reading the patent that that little spindle actually spins open. It, it enables the tie wearer to make the tie knot a little more prominent or less prominent, whatever the, the tie wearer prefers. And it immediately got me thinking, man, if D.B. Cooper actually opened up that spindle at some point, he would have likely transferred DNA to the, to the spindle to the to the shaft as part of the spindle and then when he closed it back up it's essentially secured in this little metal cylinder so i reached out to a dna specialist uh, friend who uh she worked for the oklahoma bureau of investigation doing this very thing and i said hey would would this could we have dna on there and she said absolutely so uh i worked i back channeled uh the fbi to see if i could get access to the tie to see about getting to swabbing that area uh, they pretty much told me to go F myself. And so I decided, you know what, let me go ahead and sue him. Let me go ahead and take it to, to court. So I filed in, in federal court in March of this year, Washington, D.C., basically arguing that it falls under the purview of the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, so here we are. It's been the last briefs were filed with the court uh, something like four months ago. And so we're still waiting. The, the government and, and me, we're, we're still waiting to hear from the judge uh, to get some sort of ruling or order. Uh, but as soon as we hear something from her, we'll let you know. But the hope is that myself and the DNA expert can get access to the tie. We're just talking about showing up in Washington, D.C. while the tie remains in FBI custody and just having 10 minutes with the tie. You know, let's just swab it. And let's just see what we can come up with. Yeah. Yeah, why why do you think the FBI is so reticent to share this? Do you think maybe it's tainted evidence? Do you think maybe they didn't? I've been asked that question a lot, and I don't think there's anything nefarious here. I mean, they're probably you know, I mean, I you know, I don't know. Maybe it would look kind of bad if like the FBI, after you know, forty five years or whatever, fifty years, couldn't solve the case, and some dude from Arizona rolls along and solves it like maybe it just looks bad i don't know <laughs> come on citizen detectives it's the rage right now I mean, but uh you know yeah, I, that's I think awesome what, yeah what if it's got a j edgar hoover's thumbprint on it who knows <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah so you know the thing is that uh i suspect that it's more or less they're afraid of establishing some sort of precedent now all of a sudden everybody's going to start asking for access to things uh, but, you know, I would argue that this is, a you know, you got to take these up on a case by case scenario. Uh, you know, we're, you know, myself, the DNX, but, you know, we are, we're credible people looking into this case. Uh, we're not talking about taking possession of the tire, removing it from FBI custody. So 
And the thing that's important to remember here is we're talking DNA here. It actually has the ability to solve the case 100%, to be done with it. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, I really, beyond that, I just don't know why it is that they are unwilling to play ball and, uh, you know, just give us access to the tie for a few minutes. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe the judge comes through. Maybe the, the FBI decides, you know what, let's go ahead and play ball with Eric and let's see what we can come up with. So these are, you know, obviously if we find the DNA, we, we learned so much and, and, but do you have a theory just based on what you know and all your research into this case about what actually happened to that man? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it, I, I do. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that this isn't just pulled out of thin air. There's actually a fair amount of uh, new evidence and information that has come to light in, in recent years, meaning the last 10 years. Uh, one of the fascinating things about that tie that I referenced was that uh, in 2017, a portion of the tie, or at least particles that came from the tie, were analyzed by a company called Macron Labs in Chicago. And these are world-class uh, scientists. I mean, they you know they've looked at the Shroud of Turin and all kinds. I mean, they got their you know they got a they got a great reputation. Well, they they discovered that there were something north of 100,000 particles found on that tie, at least the portion of the tie that they had a chance to review. So, and it came in the form of spreadsheets. And this included, you know, titanium, commercially pure titanium, alloy titanium, various grades of stainless steel, aluminum, rare earth elements, a whole mess of really exotic metals and materials that are, again, consistent with the aerospace sector, which uh, is, I think, very telling, considering this took place in 1971 in, in the Seattle area. Now, what I did, because I have nothing better to do than read U.S. patents and comb through Excel spreadsheets of 100,000 particles, is about a year ago, I actually started looking through, combing through at a forensic level, those particles to see if there was anything that jumped out, anything that was rare, anything that was unique. I was looking for something that was tantamount to commercial DNA. The idea being just as, you know, human DNA points to a specific individual, perhaps there's some, something on the tie in the form of a particle that pointed to a specific company. And indeed, I believe I found it in the form of three particles of a very rare titanium and antimony alloy. And why that's important is the particles seem to correlate with a U.S. patent granted to a company called Remcrew Titanium, which is no longer around, but a company called Remcrew Titanium that was based in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. And they had a significant amount of business as a subcontractor with Boeing and other aerospace companies because they provided specialty metals and created specialty metals. So that got me interviewing uh, certain people who worked there, including uh, the, the former president of a branch of the company and all kinds of people, supervisors. And ultimately, that, that led me to a particular division within this, this company called the Titanium Research Lab, which consisted of only eight men back then, and all of whom wore ties, of course, and one particular person of interest uh, that I've spent a lot of time focusing on over the last year. So I do have somebody in mind that may have been D.B. Cooper. This gentleman passed away in 2002. 
Uh, but that's part of the reason I'm trying to get my hands on the DNA. That's, you know, part of the reason I continue to search for new evidence and things of that nature. Did that guy show up, you know, driving a new car one day? Uh, any any unusual behavior of that individual that would indicate that maybe he suddenly was flush with cash? And- uh, not that I'm aware of, but I don't know. I mean, I know he had a fair amount of property holdings around, and but, you know, he was an engineer, a metallurgist for this company. So it's a little bit difficult, as you can imagine, to go back, you know, 52 years, uh, you know, looking at sort of uh, the financial picture of, of these people. And again, he passed away in 2002. Now, I actually have talked with and met with his son. He has a son who is now, I believe, about 66, 67 years old. Uh, the son is having a hard time believing his father was D.B. Cooper. But honestly, that makes sense. I mean, part of the reason D.B. Cooper got away with it is he didn't show up the following weekend at the at the pub with a with a few beers and start telling stories about getting away with two hundred grand. He kept his mouth shut, basically. So this guy was unique. This guy was rare. I mean, it's important to remember he's the only guy who has ever gotten away with it. So uh, and it's a complete mystery. So it, it is very compelling, very interesting, and there are a lot of interesting aspects to this particular person. In my mind, it checks a lot of boxes, not only the physical attributes for Cooper, but I can also put him in Seattle, put him at Boeing on the floor uh, in the years preceding the skyjacking, uh, because, again, they had a lot of business with Boeing. So And, yeah. and the, the money, so the money that you found, um, that they found buried, um, so I'm assuming they knew what the serial numbers on the money were or or was it marked or how did they know it was that money and did that money show up like in use anywhere? Um, they did have the serial numbers for all 10,000 of the $20 bills because the ransom was delivered entirely in $20 bills. So the 200,000 was made up of 10,000 $20 bills. They have those numbers recorded in advance. The money was not marked in any other way. The money was not marked in any way. The money, the the bills that were found on buried in the sand eight years later, February 1980, uh, the the serial numbers matched. So we know for sure that that was a portion of of DB Cooper's ransom. Now, with respect to the outstanding one hundred ninety four thousand dollars, we have never come across another bill, another bill in circulation, or what have you. So that may mean that none of the money was ever spent, didn't re-enter circulation. It may mean that a portion of it was spent. It just went unnoticed. It may have meant that all of it actually re-entered circulation over a period of time, maybe some of it overseas, and it just went unnoticed. The reason why is because, again, this is the, the early 70s. And as bills eventually work their way back into the treasury, the treasury destroys the bills and prints new bills. But they did not track the serial numbers of bills coming in. So it's entirely possible those bills showed up and were destroyed and new, new bills were issued. So the only wow. way that anybody would have ever discovered a bill is if you know somebody happened to have a list of the the 10,000 serial numbers and decide to cross-reference a $20 bill that they came across to see if it matched. And I think you and I all know that this, that, that seems highly unlikely. So we just don't know. We just don't know about that. 
And so I just I just looked it up. So shout out to amor- amortization.org. Uh 200 grand in 1971 is worth about 1.5 million today. That's right. Yeah. That's a lot of cash. That's a lot of cash in 1971. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it strikes me as funny. He was so meticulous about everything. It strikes me as funny that he wouldn't have requested the cash in larger bills so he wouldn't have to tote around all these 20s. Yeah, but you, I guess back then, though, if you were peeling off $100 bills, I'm sure that would raise yeah. a lot of eyebrows. Yeah. Hundreds and 50s, I think, would, would definitely be a lot more conspicuous. But I've actually thought about that because there's nothing to say that the authorities didn't deliver it in $100 bills and make it particularly difficult for the guy. But uh, so I don't know. I don't know if there's something to read into that. But uh, having said that, they delivered in $20 bills, Yeah, about 20 pounds worth. It's interesting that he maybe worked, you know, uh, in the aviation industry because he seemed to know a lot about planes and knew obviously something about skydiving because who the hell is going to jump out of a 10,000, a plane of a, a commercial airline at 10,000 feet unless they have had some experience skydiving, right? Well, here's the, here's the thing about it for, and let's talk, let's take up the skydiving aspect of it first. Uh, I'm with you. I'm thinking, you know what? The guy had to be an expert skydiver, have some sort of experience. Who, who the hell would do that? I've jumped. I've jumped from uh, 12,500 feet here. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it takes some stones. I mean, to be honest with you. So <laughs> yeah. the thing is, however, that there there is research that has been done on the D.B. Cooper copycats. As you can imagine, there were a slew of, you know, geniuses after Cooper got away with it thinking, hey, I could do that, you know. Uh, and there were several copycats. The majority of the copycats uh, had not ever jumped before. Many had never even put on a parachute before. So that's actually interesting to consider that the majority of copycats had never jumped before. Also, it's important to note that every single one of them survived. No one got killed. <laughs> so, And every single one of them got caught. And in the case of a few of them, they caught got caught several days later because, of course, they, you know, decided to talk about it and, uh, and eventually somebody got word of it. But uh, so, you know, while you would think on the surface, the guy had to have jumped before, had to have some sort of experience. If you look at the copycats as sort of a, a case uh, file or case segment of that uh, case study, rather, uh, that doesn't appear to indicate that. Indeed, the guy may have had zero experience. Now, as far as the knowledge with respect to the aviation in general, it's clear he did have specific knowledge about the Boeing 727. Recall, he asked to have the flap set at a 15-degree flap setting. The other thing is he also mentioned uh, to the flight attendants that he knew where the oxygen bottles were located on the plane, these you know metal oxygen, oxygen bottles, uh, just in a passing comment, which isn't obvious. So, and of course, he knew the air stairs could deploy in flight and everything else. So, it, it does appear that he was knowledgeable about the Boeing 727 specifically, and of course, aviation at large. Man, this is, this is, the, this is good stuff. I, this is a mystery, man. It, it's, you know, it's funny because over the years, it's like it, 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 it takes on this uh, mythical aspect to it it's almost like he's like a bigfoot like did did he even exist but it's like yeah he did exist he was a guy who jumped out of a plane with all this money um but the 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 manner in which he did it and the way he disappeared it's like he's 
he's Bigfoot or he's the Loch Ness monster or something. And it's interesting you should mention Bigfoot because I think there was a film, uh, right, with DB Cooper and Bigfoot. Oh my God, you did it! You stole two hundred thousand dollars, jumped off a plane, and killed one of the greatest of all time. Your face. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was a film. I think it came out in the. I think it was in the eighties, eighties uh, or nineties. I think it was eighties. Uh, Bigfoot and DB Cooper and. Uh, yeah, apparently they, they they ran across each other in the woods out there in Washington State. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's it's kind of uh, you know the interesting thing about it though you bring up a good point is that's part of what makes this pace this case compelling is it's real like we yeah. know this is real this guy was real this isn't Bigfoot wait big Bigfoot isn't real Loch Ness monster UFOs whatever the deal is this is a real thing. And uh, the other thing about it is just the way the guy carried himself. I've said before that it, he had this sort of James Bond-esque element to him and or aspect to him. And I think that that's part of it, too. And, of course, it was the early 70s, you know, the wake of the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Kennedy. Uh, you know, this happened uh, uh, within a few months of Kent State, you know, Vietnam War, all this kind of stuff. So it was just a tumultuous time in American history. And I think that that in part uh, uh, played a role in this sort of, you know, uh, immediate anti-hero status that, a, that the guy acquired, uh, you know, when, when he jumped. So, yeah, interesting. So what, what, would, what would it mean to you, uh, you know? say we fast forward you 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 called uh you called your shot eight years from now uh to actually know this guy's identity like what does that mean to you well if i'm the guy who figured it out it probably means a movie and a book deal uh, <laughs> nice <laughs> uh, no in all seriousness uh, uh actually I, I relish the opportunity to know who this this guy was, uh, whether I'm involved with figuring it out or not. Um, you know, it's again, we're kind of going back to just sort of the way my mind works, everything from the Rubik's Cube to professional level blackjack and card counting. You know, I just relish the challenge. So, you know, oftentimes I feel like that what's taking place here is really D.B. Cooper versus Eric Ulis. I mean, I really feel like that. We're playing the game 52 years apart at this point, but but it still feels, feels very much like that. So uh, I look forward to, to the prospect of uh, the true identity of D.B. Cooper becoming unveiled and ultimately learning precisely what happened as well. Uh, you know, if the guy were still alive today, he would be probably north of 100 years old, so that's highly unlikely. So, uh, but th but that said, you know, uh, I, I still believe that there is a way. To he solve could be it. listening, DB. If you're listening, yeah, we don't mean to we don't mean to run on your parade, brother. But time yeah. is running out. If you're a hundred, so just give us a call. <laughs> yeah, you might want to just want to fess up. Well, actually, just one last. So, you are you alone? Are you sort of? Are, is there a kind of cottage industry of DB Cooper amateur sleuths? And and does somebody have a different theory that's completely different than yours? Yeah, there are uh, there there is a, a pretty solid group of people that are interested in this case at various levels. I actually uh, created a Facebook group called the DB Cooper Mystery Group, which is the largest group related to Cooper. A couple of years ago, and we've got you know forty three hundred members on the group, and it's very active. But uh, I would say we've probably got about a dozen 
people that are pretty active. I'm, I'm probably the most active. Yeah. Uh, and you talk to those people, you have, you guys swap information. Yes. Yeah. I, I pretty much know everybody who's involved in this case and there are competing theories. Of course they're wrong and I'm right, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are competing theories out there, but I'm a big fan for, like I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories. I, I like to follow the math and the science, the evidence, put boots on the ground you know, pressure test theories and ideas. If, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, you know, change, change paths. And, and if I find a fruitful path to proceed down, then continue down that path and let's see what happens here. But, uh, but yeah, there are several other, uh, or I should say a handful of other investigators such as myself and a few others that maybe focus on things a little bit differently than me, but are, are critically important to, to helping move this case forward. And so how can, what's the best way for people who want to follow you? Cause you're clearly the guy to follow on all this. What's the best way that people can keep up with your investigations? Well, there's a couple of things you could, uh, if you're on Facebook, join the DB Cooper mystery group on Facebook. Uh, yeah, myself and others, we, we post regularly and we invite people of all knowledge levels to take part. Uh, you know, it's a really laid back and cool group. Also, I do have a personal page, just ericulis.com, which has a lot of information on there. But one, one plug I'll put in here while I'm at it as well is in three weeks, uh, we have a three-day event coming up in Seattle at the Museum of Flight called CooperCon. <laughs> I actually created this in 2018. So this is the fifth year of CooperCon. We missed 2020. It would have been the sixth year of it, but it's the fifth year. But it's great. It's three days and we have, you know, firsthand witnesses there and FBI agents there and scientists, all kinds of presentations oh, wow. and really cool stuff for three days for anybody who's interested. What day is that? Uh, it, it actually runs November 17th through November 19th. Wow. Eric, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your story. I, I can't wait to keep track. It's, it's, it's to be continued. Hopefully we can have you back on. That's uh, my pleasure. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. To, it's a lot of fun to talk about this. Yeah, I, I hope you get them, and I also hope that the ghost of DB Cooper doesn't uh, come back for you. You know, like what's up, bro? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I'm kind of assuming that if the you know, I like to think that if the ghost of DB Cooper comes back, it sort of resembles a James Bond esque kind of a guy. So. You know, he, he invites me to have a martini shake and not stirred with him and we'll be awesome. all good. So very cool, man. Well, th thanks so much for for giving us all the scoop. Fa fascinating and so cool. All the stuff that you have discovered just just out of pure passion. So it's very, very cool to hear it all. Thanks, Eric. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.